The tighter the body, the tighter, the stronger the core, the more you're going to be able to generate power. Because there are kind of freaks of nature that do things in a particular technical way that I wouldn't recommend to be done for everyone. I never, ever considered gymnastics to be an individual sport. It, it, it was always a team sport to me. Find a love for something. Like, you have, to, you have to enjoy what you're doing if you're going to expect to do it for duration, for longevity. I never want to do that again. I never want to feel like it's up to me or a hand, handful of people to make or break someone's entire career. So it's, it's, it's casual conversation. Dave Durante, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. I know we we uh, we just connected uh, on your podcast, and now you're you're on mine. So it feels like we're hey, it took ten years for us to uh, connect again. <laughs> Seriously, how crazy! Yeah, we we didn't talk for what seven years, eight years, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not not life because is- of anything that happened. It's just life took us in those directions, and uh, there wasn't a, uh, wasn't whatever reason to uh, to connect. But I'm glad we uh, eventually got back to it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad to have you here. I want to dive into everything gymnastics, Power Monkey Fitness, uh, yeah, all of it. So uh, it, let's just dive right in and let's start with the technical. And, uh, you know, I don't know where your brain is right now, but, um, you know, I was thinking earlier this morning, I'm like, oh, I'm going to talk to Dave. What what do I want to know? And the first thing that came to mind, this is very geeked out is uh, this idea of fundamental movements. And um, when looking at gymnastics, the sport of gymnastics, artistic gymnastics, what are the fundamental movements that are essential to maintain and have throughout one's gymnastics career? Ooh, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty interesting question. I haven't really thought about it, like really definitively saying these are. But I would say there's a few things that are really important. I'd say the way that we teach adults now, which is maybe slightly different than when you're teaching a kid in terms of some of the, the things that come along with uh, the challenge of chaining someone that didn't grow up with the sport. We always kind of uh, talk about this idea of uh, creating good shapes, right? And what goes into creating good shapes? Uh, a strong core. We talk about making sure you're maintaining a strong midline, not just what you have in your abdominals, but uh, as well as your hip flexors and posterior chain and your rotation and lateral work. So I think a strong core is kind of a component there for shape creation, as well as mobility, right? You need to be able to get into the shapes that you need to be able to apply them to higher higher skill development. So for me, this idea of being able to create shapes is kind of a general concept that I think is important. Now, on top of that, tools and fundamentals that I think are important for gymnasts. One, I'm going to say handstands because I think a handstand is a critical one one that I'm, I'm in love with and that I do on a regular basis and that I teach and that I think has a lot of applicability to it, a ton of obviously gymnastics movements, but just fitness in general. Aside from a good handstand, I think two others that are really important are rolling and twisting. So for me, the just top of mind, I think handstands, rolling and twisting will be the fundamental building blocks of most gymnastics movements, along with this idea of being able to create good shapes. I love it. You know, I was thinking, I was trying to break it down into, uh, because I, I obsess with this idea of like transferable skills. And I was thinking, oh, okay, gymnastics applied to CrossFit, for example. I started thinking jumping and landing. But then in gymnastics, you do a lot of rebounding. Mm-hmm. It's it's more rebounding than it is jumping. Right, Yeah. right. Um, so I was thinking, okay, and, and, I, and I would say that maybe women do more jumping than men, um, just because like 
the beam uh, versus men are mostly on floor and vault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how, how important is this idea of learning to rebound? For a gymnast? For a gymnast and then maybe applied to just the general public or somebody who's maybe in uh, general fitness or CrossFit. Yeah, I mean, essentially it's a plyometric type of a movement, uh, being able to use skeletal structure as opposed to musculature to generate power. So it's a slightly different approach because of the surface that you're on. And I think most people that are rarely, um, you know, confronted with a trampoline, a rod floor, a tumble track, a spring floor, they have a very small little understanding of the power that can be generated by staying rigid. This, this rebounding technique or blocking technique is another term that we might use in the gymnastics world. And the value in the gymnastics world is paramount. I mean, you, you cannot create maximum force, you cannot create maximum power without staying rigid. Uh, so the tighter the body, the tighter, the stronger the core, the more you're going to be able to generate power. So that the, the athletes that are able to do that and not create laxity or slack, um, they're the ones that are going to be able to generate the maximum force out of that particular surface. Now, this is an interesting conversation because sometimes um, we're seeing former gymnasts apply these same techniques in a CrossFit setting, and they don't transfer very well. And it's one of my talking points a lot when it comes to like handstand walking even because a lot of gymnasts learn how to handstand walk with a rigid elbow, with a rigid shoulder because they're working on blocking for back handspring techniques or takeoff techniques. And then they try to do the same thing on a hard rubber floor or concrete or on grass. And if you're doing that same rigid technique on a surface that does not have rebound to it, you're essentially crushing your joints. And so what we have to understand that there's more of a a, a push technique on a surface that does not have a lot of rebound to it versus this blocking technique that's going to generate power for you. So there is slightly a different application according to how you're going to be utilizing it. But as a gymnast, the blocking a rigid technique is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like the the equipment is makes a huge uh, difference in how you approach this. And and for those listening, like blocking, for example, it's, it's learning to rebound uh, basically with your uh, upper body, let's say your hands and elbows and shoulders, but um, not just rebounding, it's using the equipment to help you rebound. So on floor, uh, vault, et cetera. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And, and and the other thing I was thinking about in terms of fundamental movements, and let's see if this, this resonates with you. I was thinking, okay, yeah, handstands, uh, jumping, landing, rebounding, uh, rolling, and then uh, being able to do uh, swinging, so for high bar, bars, uh, uh, rings. Uh, and then I was thinking, oh, yeah. And then for tumbling, of course, being able to do like a snap down, for example, is, mm-hmm. is, is key. Are, are those fundamental, would you say, that, that are something that carry uh, throughout the sport of gymnastics? And are those transferable? Yeah, absolutely. So I think instead of swinging, just hanging as even a precursor to that, um, because I think that shape creation will kind of build into that uh, swinging technique. They kind of work hand in hand, but hanging in general is one of the other things that I preach endlessly as being valuable to any athlete. Uh, grip strength, we've seen to have a ton of value just in terms of longevity outside of just its value in terms of sport. And so I would highly recommend people working on hanging technique techniques, not just in over grip, but the value that comes along with mixed grip and supinated grip as well, working on one one arm hangs to be able to actually manipulate apparatus in your hand and working on not the apparatus controlling you, but you controlling the apparatus. That comes from understanding what that bar or ring feels like in your hand 
It's actually just as a little side note. It's one of the reasons why I think when you're learning, um, unless you have a tear and there's fluids all over the bar, I'd recommend people learning how to hang without grips on so they can really start to understand what that apparatus feels like in their hand. It's a much more of a connection to the apparatus. So hanging, I think, is a critical one as well. And then from there, building into swings and beyond. I think snap downs is an interesting one. It's very specific. Mm -hmm. um, I think it comes more to that. It, it falls into that rebound category. It, it's a similar type of action and movement to the rebound. It just start, it, the, the starting point is slightly different. So it's just coming from uh, a slightly different movement, a slightly different angle. But the purpose behind it is still to be able to generate power from the floor and then create a particular angle out of it. So I don't know if many of your listeners have done a snap down from a block or from a, um, a springboard or anything, but essentially it's it's starting in an inverted position and snapping your feet down towards the ground to then be able to set up for what you might utilize in coming out of a round off or out of backhand, backhand spring to generate power for maybe a tumbling type of a, a movement. Right. And and like you were saying, the the angles there are key because if you're doing a round of back handspring, of course, you're going to want to land at a different angle than if you want to take off and do a double layout. Yeah. Uh, and could I just mention huge. something on that Please. really quickly? Please. Um, th this is something that um, I think is still developing in the sense of the techniques that maybe we learned and that I'm still confident work are being challenged a little bit. If you I know watch... where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going. Japan. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> If you watch some of the insane athletes that are doing things on Instagram or performing at the Olympic Games or World Championships, we're seeing some techniques that are very different than what we were taught. And a lot of them have to do with um, wide hand position on a round off, almost into a position where they're in like a, a wide arm Japanese type handstand, so wide that it would never be anything that we would have normally heard as a correct technical aspect or technical component or um, round off into a triple back or round off into a double double um, movements that are incredibly challenging that were always thought that you needed a back handspring or you needed to generate more momentum into being able to actually do that that high level skill and those are being challenged now by some variation in techniques in terms of how things are being um, initiated so I would say that, yes, these are absolutely fundamental things that we taught, but they're being tweaked a little bit by some new athletes out there with incredible results. So I'd like to say that things are constantly evolving and we're learning from the past and making things even a little bit more exciting. Mm, yeah, I, I love that you bring this up. And, and for people listening right now, we, we probably lost, you know, 70% of the listeners, but that's good. <laughs> that's good. I wanted to get uh, just geeked out and, and technical here. I, I love that you bring this up because... One of the things that I'm also interested in and in seeing the overlap between traditional sports and these alternative action sports and something that we've seen, yeah, the Japanese have really brought this to the forefront is is twisting in a way that happens off axis. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the width of the hands, the, the uh, speed that you have to generate to be able to get to these positions, to rebound in a way that allows you to get the height and also get all the twisting in within the range of motion that you have uh, is producing a whole new style of gymnastics. Mm -hmm. From your traditionally trained eye, does that seem appealing to you? Is it exciting or is it like, oh, what are you doing? I, th I think at first it's like, oh my, oh my gosh, what is, what is happening here? You know, it's a little bit of a shock to the system to see athletes performing in a way that is so unorthodox. Um, and then... 
you take a deep breath and you say, okay, this is an evolution. You know, the, the sport is evolving. The, the level of skill that athletes are doing now is already light years ahead of what we were doing when we were, you know, I, I finished competing now 14, 14 years ago. And I am so grateful that I'm not competing anymore because of the craziness that I'm seeing these guys do now. So, you know, there is this moment of, okay, yes, it's different. Why is it different? What is it going to allow for the sport to do moving forward? And so I think it's, it's important as uh, someone who likes to analyze movement and a coach, however you want to put it and what my position is now, to be able to appreciate that it's a part of the learning process to be able to say, is there value here? Is this just one one anomaly uh, that's able to do it this particular way, or does it have transferability in terms of how we apply this to general population or more athletes? Because there are kind of freaks of nature that do things in a particular technical way that I wouldn't recommend to be done for everyone. And you'd be able to say, yeah, that person can do it that way because of their anatomy or because of th their, their ability to have fast-twitch muscle fibers activated in a ways that other people can't. And so you can't apply that to everyone. But then there are more general technical changes that I think are more applicable. So it's about kind of weeding through those differences in terms of who the athlete maybe is. Mm -hmm. that, that's a great point. And it, and it kind of helps me segue a little bit into the conversation that I wanted to have with you around uh, gymnastics applied to artistic gymnastics versus gymnastics applied to general fitness or CrossFit. And... Uh, I mean, when you came into the world of CrossFit and fitness, what was that like for you? Was that a shock? Was that uh, exciting? Like, how did you experience the way that you were witnessing people moving in a quote unquote gymnastics manner? Uh, I I'm just curious as to what your perception of that was and how you navigated it. I, I found it to be incredibly exciting. Like exciting is probably the best word for it in the sense that I was doing it myself because I, I thought that the methodology was phenomenal in terms of just uh, being able to stay fit, uh, especially if you, if you did it in a way that was less on the competitive side and more about longevity, which is kind of the way that I approach it even today and the way that I teach it. But from a, a, my whole goal, my entire life post-competitive career, has been to try to expose more people to gymnastics and to be able to say, there's incredible tools in here that can help you no matter what your fitness goals are. And so from the gymna from the artistic gymnastics world, there's always been this challenge of how do we get more eyeballs on our sport? How do we convey the difference between a back tuck, a double back, a triple back, a triple double, laid out triple double? How do we convey that the, the everyday consumer and viewer doesn't just say, wow, those are all awesome and they're all too difficult for me. We need to be able to form a level of comparison between an A-level skill, and now a J-level skill. Mm -hmm. And it's nearly impossible if you do it two weeks every four years, where suddenly someone wants to see Simone Biles win the Olympic gold medal, and they tune in during the Olympics, and then they forget about it every four years. CrossFit and the functional fitness and calisthenics world have now exposed gymnastics, whether or not it's you know, very basic or introductory gymnastics movements, to general population. And it's allowed us to be able to say, okay, we have a set of rings hanging up in your gym. You have a bar now. You're going to use it for more than just a pull-up. We're going to work on our handstands and walking on our hands and working on handstand push-ups. This, to me, was exciting in the sense that I could help facilitate the technical aspect, making sure people are doing this well and for longevity purposes, but also start to kind of say, hey, 
you know, there's another world here. We can see where this kind of eventually builds to. That's one of the reasons why I always preach not training towards a standard as a CrossFit athlete, but instead always training towards the highest level version of that movement. So the progressions that we put in place, the way that we're going to be thinking about this in terms of trajectory will always be with that in mind. It's less important for me to actually think that that person is ever going to learn that movement, but it's more important for me to be able to expose them to be able to say, hey, this is the next step in this continuum. You may not get there, but we're going to build towards that so we have an understanding of what that eventual movement might look like. Mm. Yeah, and can you elaborate a little bit on that idea of the highest version of a movement pattern or um, an exercise, if sure, you want to call sure. it that? Um, talk about it maybe in the courses with a handstand. You know, a handstand is kind of an easy one for most people to conceptualize. Most people who are just in a general gym, a CrossFit gym, maybe kicking up against the wall, doing a wall walk maybe, doing a handstand push-up, the wall is their guide. And that becomes their only application of the handstand, maybe because they're scared or because that's the only way that they interpret it in terms of utilizing it in a workout. But there are tons of variation of handstands, right? The, we want to be moving away from the wall. We want to be able to do a freestanding handstand with purpose and control, right? Being able to work with precision, finding alignment, then maybe doing a handstand on parallettes, then maybe working towards um, a one-arm handstand maybe working on some variations of different positional components with a handstand, maybe doing a handstand freestanding on rings one day, maybe a swinging handstand on rings one day. So um, there are levels to this. And so when I'm telling people this in, in courses or teaching it, they normally laugh and say like, yeah, well, that's never going to happen. But that's not the point of the conversation, whether or not it happens. You know, if that endpoint ever does happen, amazing. Clearly, you've put in a lot of time into particular skill development. But we need to set the precedent around what the foundation looks like so that you actually have the ability to work beyond just what that standard is. So it's thinking a little bit further ahead rather than just what's immediate, immediately in front of you. Yeah, and I love that you, you're you bringing this to the forefront because something that um, anybody who is a, a high performer uh, that is maybe new or newish to high performance has a hard time seeing the long road. And right now, I mean, just CrossFit itself is is currently in evolution and it's evolving faster than people can keep up with the evolution itself. And although, yeah, there are standards that are set through the CrossFit games or the sport of CrossFit, um, it, it's it's not giving people the full range, the, the full uh, potential. And just what you shared about the handstand right now gives people the ability to think about, wait, wait a second, if I do a muscle up two handstand and that happens to be a standard in a competition, eventually my my rings are going to swing because we haven't standardized the length of the straps, for example. Mm-hmm. Thus, the swing is going to be a little bit different. How do I work with that swing to be able to get back into rhythm? Simple things, I guess, for somebody like yourself who has been through gymnastics training and has had to go through this, but for somebody who's in the CrossFit space, um, it's hard to see. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think it's it's very cool that you're you're bringing that up. I'm curious now, let's, let's just rewind and go back to this idea of shaping, body shaping uh, that you were talking about earlier. Right now in your coaching where you do uh, gymnastics applied to functional fitness or CrossFit, um, is that where you start? Do you start with, sh- with shaping or do you, do you start somewhere else? Yeah, it's normally where we start. We, we, we talk about that as kind of an initial component. We think about it in a, a hierarchy of gymnastics movement. And our hierarchy is based around four phases. And phase one is creation of body shapes. 
more core more mobility uh, type particular movement patterns, things that should be done on a daily basis. And then from that cr shape creation, it goes goes to static hold controlled movements. So working a lot more isometric and tempo work, something that most athletes are already doing with their barbell work. For whatever reason, people are willing to spend tons of time doing five-second tempo squats, five-second pause squats, overhead, front squats, whatever you're going to do on the lifting side. They apply all of those things for, you know, all of their strength building. But there's not that same um, stress being put onto the same thing in the gymnastics world. And it's where we build all of our strengths, where we build our strength and stability by slowing things down, by spending time on parallel bars and support before you jump to rings and have no idea how to support yourself correctly. By working on the bottom part of your dip and getting comfortable and getting the structure and the musculature of the front part of the shoulder prepped for that catch position that you're going to eventually do with momentum. So we spend a ton of time after shape creation on this misstep or neglected step or boring step maybe for some people and try to kind of put it into a way that allows them to understand the value around isometric work, tempo work, eccentrics, so that they can actually start getting into the phase three, which is dynamic using momentum, using kipping, and do it in a much more, um, not just safe way, but also uh, efficient way. We want them to be able to move safely, but also efficiently and say, this is going to help your time as well. You're going to become better at the movement because you actually move well. So uh, for us, that shape creation is always the start of the conversation, then it kind of builds from there. Yeah, and what's the, what's the fourth, fourth stage? Fourth stage is creation of uh, complex sequences and routines. So it's essentially combining the, the, the first three phases together into something more complex, maybe what you would see a CrossFit athlete do at the games or maybe what you'd see an Olympic athlete do together, combining skills. So instead of just repetitively doing the same movement, how do I combine skill one into skill two into skill three? So it's creation of sequences and complex routines, that kind of a thing. Mm, that's cool. Could you give me an example of one of them that you, you use, for example, in, in one of the camps or sure, seminars sure. that you teach? Yeah. So uh, a bar example would be, you know, um, toes to bar, into chest to bar, into bar muscle up. So they have to go from a below the bar to above the bar. Or if we do that, then above the bar, front roll out of it, back to a hang, into some strict movements. So you go from a swing and then into a strict. So it forces them to kind of think about movements in different planes and different patterns as well as different speeds. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yeah, and what, what have you found surprising in, in working with uh, athletes that are outside of gymnastics, learning gymnastics at maybe a later age? Well, one, I will tell you that it's the most gratifying group of athletes I've ever worked with in the sense that they want to be there, all right? Now, I won't say, you know, I, I coached the national team guys and I coached Stanford and I coached a lot of the higher level guys and I've been around that world for a very long time. Uh, not to say that those guys don't want to be there, but it's a job for them, you know? And there are days when you don't want to be there and there's days when your body's hurting and there's other things going on. And when, when, you, when it's a job, a lot of other things come into play. And there's a lot more like coaxing into getting things out of an athlete rather than an athlete's doing it because it's a hobby or someone that, something that they really love. So you know when they come into the gym, they're going to be present and they're really in, enjoying it. And so every, everything is exciting for an athlete when they're, when they're new. You know, it's, it's uh, learning something for the first time. It's you know, doing something they didn't think they were capable of doing and uh, finding a, a love for something at 50 years old is is exciting. And sometimes people don't think that they're capable of doing that. And 
so for me it, it's it's gratifying in a way that i didn't get when i was coaching higher level gymnasts and i i there's amazing things about that world too but i just find it to be so exciting and gratifying and and uh you know filling for my soul to be able to work with people that are new to it later in life i feel like um i'm exposing them to something a secret that i've known my entire life and now and, and giving them kind of uh the ability to see that same thing so for me it's an incredibly exciting thing and then like i said uh, passing on some aspects of the higher level sport that maybe they didn't uh, know existed otherwise. Talking about some of the rules and regulations and the fact that we used to have three other um, events in men's gymnastics that were pretty cool, whether that be rope climb or Indian clubs or swinging rings and like giving some of the history of the sport that I think uh, are exciting to me to be able to pass that on so they have some better understanding of where we come from. Yeah, that is that is really cool. And right right now, how how much time do you spend in the CrossFit space versus the artistic gymnastics space? Uh, well, a little bit of background. Uh, after I retired, I became uh, a representative at the Olympic Committee uh, with the Athlete Advisory Council for gymnastics for ten years. That's voted on by the athletes, so I took the position very seriously about making sure that uh, I was doing my best to be able to represent um, the men's and women's athletes of USA Gymnastics at the highest level. And so you have a 10-year um, window. Basically, you're allowed to stay within that role within 10 years of your last competition. So in 2018, I kind of finished that role. And along with that role, I was also um, part of the men's technical committee with USA Gymnastics. So I helped with some of the rules and things like that. I helped with the selection procedures, I helped pick the world championship teams and the Olympic teams that um, were kind of in that window of time. So that's the worst position I ever had and ever mm. ever had to deal with. And I'd never want to have that position again. It's a, a miserable thing to have to do to make the, the dreams come true of five, six athletes and ruin the lives of a few others in terms of their athletic achievement it's it's a miserable thing to do but I took it seriously it was something I really cared about um, but then when that window was over I had already kind of been fully entrenched in the fitness world and so I'd say my time is much more spent with the everyday CrossFit functional fitness athlete calisthenics people that just want to learn basic gymnastics more than it is working with the elite of the elite I still uh, during pandemic I would do conditioning uh, with the national team over zoom weekly uh, which I don't think they liked very much, but they probably <laughs> needed it. Uh, but for the most part, my world is much more in the uh, the functional fitness CrossFit world than it is in artistic gymnastics these days, even though I'm still a yeah. huge fan. Make, makes sense. Um, this may be a digression, but uh, having that role where you had to uh, say who went and who didn't go in gymnastics, uh, did you take that? Uh, was that hard to do, especially having been on the other side on the receiving end uh, not too long ago? Yeah, uh, 100%. I didn't want it. I, I, I told them I didn't want to do it. Uh, in fact, I I refused to do it. And um, they, f they basically made me do it because I was the only person that could do it at the time. You needed one athlete representative on the committee. Uh, there were five of us. And you needed an athlete to be able to have one of the roles. And um, it was passed along to me by... One of my idols in the sport who's doing it before me, John Roethlisberger, who's the owner of our yeah. facility where we host the Power Monkey Camp, him and John McCready. And he was just like, you have to do it. Like, that's part of this job. I know you hate it. We all hate doing it because we understand what comes along with it. And I had just freshly come off of uh, my 
extremely challenging experience with that position as well uh, in 08. And uh, so I know what the athletes are going through. You know, I think maybe that's one of the things that's a benefit is having someone in the role that knows what the emotions are like and and what uh, the athlete is feeling like sitting in that position. But um, I never want to do that again. I never want to feel like it's up to me or a hand, handful of people to make or break someone's entire career. And it's hard to do. It's really hard. Yeah. And I don't know if you're willing to go down this path. Uh, so if you're not, just say, uh, <laughs> that's a stop. Um, can we take it back to 2007, 2008? Um, sure. To when you were a gymnast and going through that experience? Uh, yeah. What was that like, and, and how did you uh, manage the, the stressors uh, of the time uh, when the team was being put together, then the Olympics happening, and then um, you started to move into retirement? Yeah, uh, I've talked about this a few times, and obviously it's uh, it's kind of a pivotal moment in my life. It is kind of like what ended up leading me to be the person I am today. So while it was filled with incredible highs and lows, uh, 07, I won national championship. Um, I was top guy in the country. We went to world championships. I didn't perform as well as I could have in team finals, and we ended up fourth place uh, right behind Germany in Germany. And then leading into the Olympic year, uh, I was clearly one of the the guys in the mix. You know, there were probably about 10 guys that legitimately had a shot at being named to the 08 Olympic team. Um, most press and outside people didn't think we had much of a shot coming off of the incredible success of the 04 team that finished second. Uh, but we did have Paul and Morgan Hom, who had been on the 2000-2004 uh, team, the two twin brothers. They were coming back and trying to make a comeback. And um, this this may take a little bit long. I don't want to go off too many tangents no, let's, here. But... Let's, let's go into it. I, I know you've talked about this before, but there's certain <laughs> elements of it that I think have shaped you into who you are as a coach and how you think about uh, not only a sport, but the lifestyle of a sport. Yeah. Um, the, the selection procedures are brutal. They're really challenging. And it was especially challenging in 08. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever going to go through the same selection procedures that happened in 08 because we had a lot of extenuating circumstances. So essentially, what I mean by that is uh, we have a national championships, which is kind of counted as 50% of the selection procedure that was in Houston, Texas in 08. And at that competition, uh, Paul Hom won. But on the last event, he broke his hand. And so even though he won, he broke his hand on parallel bars. And we had about a month before Olympic trials. And so the selection committee was going to give Paul as much time as he needed to prepare because Paul was... He made a comeback, and he was already like well above the rest of us. He was, he was the only one that legitimately could have um, tried to compete with um, Yang Wei and and um, Tomita, the top guys in the world at that time. He actually could have vied for an Olympic um, podium spot, even though he had taken a majority of that quad off. So, with that being said, we went into Olympic trials. That competition happened. We don't need to go into too much, but I had a mistake on pommel horse on the first day, which. Uh, was a huge error for me and I had some errors on palm horse at national championships and those things really detracted from from my ability to say that I was going to contribute to the team as as in the areas that I probably could have and so um, the team was selected Paul and Morgan were both put onto the team 
and um, that there were named three reserve athletes, myself, Sasha Artemev, and Raj Bavzar. And the three of us were named traveling reserves. But we had another selection uh, competition, um, Olympics selection camp at the Olympic Training Center right before we left for uh, Beijing. So went to Olympic Training Center. I was living there at the time. We'd had two more days of competition. Each of these selections is two full days of competition. We did two more days. I did great there. I performed probably uh, better than even Olympic trials. So I was kind of peaking at the right time, which is something that we're always trying to do. And um, right after that competition, we saw that Paul wasn't going to be able to compete. And so Paul pulled out of the selection procedures. He's like, I'm not going to go forward with Beijing. So that opened up a slot. And um, I think all three of us thought we deserved to be in that spot. I 100% thought I was the best person to fill in for Paul. And they put Raj in in that spot. And this was a couple of days before we were supposed to leave for Beijing. And that was that was really, really hard on me. I don't think I, I cried in my life as hard as that day. Uh, mm-hmm. I just remember sitting in my room at the Olympic Training Center being really, really just emotionally just spent, like just so drained, like had nothing left. Like I'd give, given everything I had emotionally, physically um, to this process and felt like I was let down. And, um, you know, Raj was a incredible gymnast, someone that op- absolutely, and Raj had gone through the same thing in 04 and had been a reserve athlete and he had been through it once, once before, but uh, Raj was selected, and then uh, so me and Sasha were reserves. We went to Beijing. Uh, we were performing, 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 doing our preps, doing all the things, and getting ready as a reserve athlete. You have to be ready up until, you know, the day of the competition. And then um, we were to do podium training. Happens a few days before the actual start of the games. Me and Sasha did podium training at the Beijing Olympic Training Center, which is one routine on every event with uniforms and judges, treated just like a competition. And I did very well. I did hit six for six. I had a very good competition there. I was feeling really ready to go. I was feeling like just raring. Like if they needed me, I was ready. Uh, and then the day before the Olympics, Morgan pulled out of the Olympics. Um, he got uh, injured as well. And so we knew that Morgan was kind of question mark as well. So that's why they brought three of us. So Morgan pulled out, and then so the day before opening ceremonies, Sasha and I had to go back to the training center and perform two more routines, one on floor and one on pommel horse, to be able to show readiness on those two events. And I hit both of my routines as well as I possibly could. I put up great routines. And Sasha, for those of you who don't know, Sasha is one of the best pommel horse performers in the world at the time, had just come off of Insane. a world medal. Incredible pommel horse performer. Um and really, that was the event that we needed a third score on. And while I was, you know, top three in the country on Palm Wars at the time, I won Palm Wars at, Olymp- at Olympic trials the second day. But I was a, you know, question mark. You know, I didn't, I wasn't as consistent as probably they wanted me. Sasha, if he hit his routine, could finish on the podium on Palm Wars. And so Sasha hit his Palm Wars routine. And that night we went to the village and they picked Sasha to go in. And that was the other time I cried the most of my life um, up to that time being in the village and knowing uh, that uh, the next day was going to be opening ceremony and the guys were going to go and represent the U.S. and it came down to basically the last minute 
and um it was an emotional roller coaster and i i will say that uh you know the end of that roller coaster was that the guys who were out on the floor those six guys um put on, put on one of the most incredible men's team performances you will ever witness i whenever we talk about this uh, whenever i'm talking about this i always recommend everyone going to watch that competition because the guys put on a performance for the ages they ended up securing a bronze medal uh but it was without a doubt a, a gold medal performance uh china and japan were just more talented than we were but in terms of the grit and the attitude and the performance of that uh that night usa was the best and uh john horn put on you know stuck every routine it was incredible it looked like fake it looked like coming out of a dream and palm horse was the last event and sasha was the last performer on that event and we needed him to hit to secure that bronze medal and uh <laughs> funny story uh sasha was a young kid you know a young kid early 20s at the time and um he forgot his uniform he didn't bring his uniform to beijing and oh so, my god uh i had to give him my uniform to wear for team finals and so uh sasha was wearing my uniform for team finals out there he hit the routine of his life, won that medal, and uh, we had a nice little connection moment with me up there, cheering him on. Uh, got to go down on the floor and uh, celebrate with them a little bit, and uh, yeah, it was one of those moments that was, like I said, a roller coaster of emotions all the way through the process. But that's what made me the person I am today. Like that that moment, I had a had a uh, two doors in front of me to be able to say. Make a huge problem for this team because you thought that you should have been selected. And, you know, I've seen other people in those positions not not do well and not put the team forward and just make it about an individual. And I said, I can do that and make, you know, I had the right to be able to be pissed off. Or I said, you know what, it's this is bigger than me. The team is absolutely what matters. And the selection is what the selection is. It's part of how it is. And you do everything you possibly can at this moment to make sure that the team succeeds. And that's the door that I chose. And, uh, you know, carrying water bottles and bringing the bags, and cheering my ass off and making sure that the guys were as ready as possible to be able to succeed, succeed that night. And they did. And I feel like I um, did everything possible to make sure that I was contributing and a part of that team. And I think they recognize that, you know, um, the, the flag behind me here is a flag of uh, all nine of us, all nine of us, uh, Paul and Morgan included. And it's one of the things that's very close to my heart that um, it really was one team. And uh, we're still very close up to this point. It's uh, one of the highlight highlight moments for, for better or for worse in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry talk for the about story there. No, that's that that story. I think that story is is kind of the take home because it's it's the inflection point in your life that opened up this new chapter that you've been in where now you're you're a coach you're a father uh, you are a business person you have a lot going on and to be so close to the pinnacle of uh your athletic expression and not be able to like you had even your clothes were up there doing the, the performance <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's like oh yeah uh, yeah your uniform was there, but you didn't get to participate in that mm-hmm. way. Uh, to reconcile that, um, 
is something that I, I see as um, very courageous, heroic, and uh, fundamental to who you are. So I, I, I just want to acknowledge you for that and, I and thank that. you for, for sharing. Um, yeah. yeah, so you have you, you still have friendships, of course. Uh, what were the lessons um, that you got from that uh, besides being a team player and, and moving things forward in terms of managing expectations, uh, mindset, and, and how do you um, convey these these lessons to the people you work with today? Yeah, so um, I think there are some things I probably would have done differently and, and um, appreciated a little bit more guidance on just around the mental side, you know, uh, the, my, my experience leading up to the 04 games, I was a mental wreck, like, um, had put all of my, my training, like I, I totally stopped talking to friends and, you know, stopped talking to my family and just like put everything into training. And I did very well, but I had, I mean, I had no social skills. I had, uh, I don't finishing out of college. I feel like I had pissed off everyone in my life. Uh, for this goal and recognize that that's not the route that you need to take to be able to have balance in your life and and also success. Um, so 08, I was much more about balance. I, I did move to the Olympic Training Center and took that as a step in the right direction. Uh, but I think um, being able to have separation between uh, this this ultimate goal as an athlete and being able to step away and say there are other things in life that are important to be able to share that load is a critical step for any athlete. I think um, you can be. Uh, I was I was on NPR actually uh, leading up to the Olympics, and I was answering some questions. And a woman called in and said she was rather negative with her question, but I appreciated it. She was basically saying, um, "Every time I see an athlete at your level, I see an obsession, and it an unhealthy obsession." And I could, and she was just making it to be very negative. This idea of uh, an athlete putting all their time and effort into something at the highest level. And I said, you know, maybe there's an uh, obsessive component, but if you target it more into like a passion, uh, something that you care about deeply, um, I think there can be incredible positives that come out of it. You know, Um, I feel lucky to have found a passion, obsession, however you want to view it early in life that I'm able to translate into a career later down the road. Most athletes at the highest level need to be passionate, borderline obsessed. That doesn't mean that you can't have balance. That doesn't mean that you can't have things outside of the sport that allow you to feel like you can close that door for a moment in time and have friendships and, and feel like you can connect with your family and, and um, do things that don't make you go down this black hole of feeling it's just you or nothing. And um, that's the part that I think a lot of athletes need to find. Even now, even a CrossFit Games athlete needs to be able to find balance. Uh, And it's not easy to do, but I highly recommend them to be able to search for that. Find what what works well for them so that an obsession can actually maybe skew more towards just this idea of passion rather than just something that you obsess over all the time and doesn't have value in the long run. Mm, I I really like that. And I think it comes down to this idea of self-mastery, which uh, can't be pursued without a connection with your outside world, whether it's the relationships with your uh, family, friends, community. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and finding that balance like you said um where you can you can leverage um your world or your environment to uh, become even better at your craft yeah. or in your in your way of expressing yourself through the craft and your relationship to it i i couldn't agree more and, and let me just very... add one more thing to yeah, that please you're, please you're exactly you're exactly right and this is another thing i mention a lot and i really want to stress is that gymnastics or crossfit or whatever other sport that's considered to be an individual sport i never ever considered gymnastics to be an individual sport it, it, it was always a team sport to me always from when i was six years old and i first started I was fortunate enough to be at a club gym in New Jersey, Surgeons Elite, shout out to them. They molded my my love for the team aspect of gymnastics, the fact that your performance contributes to something bigger. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to compete collegiately, why I wanted to compete for my country, and why Power Monkey is such a family and a team, because everyone's contribution matters. And so even if you are doing something individually, if you have a support system around you, a team, you know, a family, whatever it might be, and you're feeling like your contribution is is for the greater cause, I guarantee you, you're going to be able to achieve things that you're not, you didn't think were possible if you were doing it only for yourself. So uh, I never thought of gymnastics as an individual sport, and I, I don't today either. I think most people that do it collegiately or at a high level will tell you that the team is more important than the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I've, I've also... Uh, stress that over the years is kind of like, yeah, gymnastics is an individual sport, but you can't progress unless you can see your future and you have people that are better than you that you can kind of chase and, and, mm-hmm. and leverage and then have people behind you that are pushing you uh, to get better because they want to want to get you and and to have the energy uh, in the gym that is is the best. And especially when you're doing scary things. I mean, gymnastics is scary. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No doubt. Those elements can be very crazy. But when you have people around you believing in you and cheering you on and excited for your progress, I mean, that's that's huge. Um, yeah, I, lo- I love that you brought that to the forefront. Now, kind of uh, taking a little bit of a segue here into your career, which is the continuation of, of your gymnastics career, but now as a coach. I'm curious if that was clear for you that you were going to be a coach or did you think as a gymnast that, oh, yeah, I'll retire from gymnastics. I'll be rich. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was I'll ever be, the consideration. <laughs> I'll be I'll be the first rich gymnast. Uh, no, what, what was that like? Um, yeah, mentally, did, did you have a career path? I know you went to school and you studied and you had all these things kind of um, brewing. But yeah, what was that like? Uh, I actively did not want to be a coach. I, I said, this is 100% not the career path that I would like to do. Um, when you're an athlete, it's really hard to see the coaching side, for me at least. Like, I was so worried about my own career that I didn't think about like what the coaching side was. And I think a lot of athletes are like that. You know, I'm focused on my, my goals here. But I also didn't think I had the ability to be a high-level coach because I looked at my coach, my all my coaches contributed something really important to my career, but my final coach, the one at the Olympic Training Center, I think is the best coach in the world. He's just a, uh, he can read minds, essentially. I always thought he had the ability to know my thoughts, even maybe before I had the thoughts. Not not could read my mind in real time, but he had the ability to be so intuitive with each of his athletes individually that um, it was a, a, a skill that I 
thought you were born with. And you just don't, I don't have, I don't have the ability to coach at his level. Therefore, I don't think I want to be a coach. Uh, he was phenomenal. I mean, technically and um, emotionally, he just had everything there to be able to provide me with what I needed to to achieve the highest level. And sometimes I felt like I let him down, you know, like I didn't I didn't achieve the things that he saw in me because, you know, I underperformed, but it was never because of his lack of coaching ability. And I actually, like I said, I wanted to get away. I had gotten a, a human biology degree from Stanford, minor in psychology, a, uh, considered a, a, a career in the medical field, uh, physical therapy. Um, but then when I moved to Olympic Training Center, my focus kind of geared much more towards just training. And then uh, after I retired, I moved to Italy. And uh, I'm an Italian citizen, and most of my family lives out there. And I wanted to get away from the sport. I wanted to kind of like just change gears a little bit. And uh, I tried to set up some internships and some wineries to to work in the wine industry a little bit. I really love that. And so I was like thinking something completely different than sport and training. And then uh, I had an unfortunate incident happen while I was I was in Austria with uh, one of my gymnast friends uh, who was on the, the Austrian Olympic team. I went to go visit him in Innsbruck and he took me skiing for the first time where they've had two Olympic games. So it was not like a bunny slope and my knees are pathetic. And oh, goodness. I fell in the first 50 feet and blew my knee out, ACL, MCL, meniscus, which is my third uh, blown out knee. And uh, so I had to have surgery in Italy. And during my rehab process, I started doing uh, PT and recovery in a small gymnastics gym in Rome and uh, started work with these kids. And I started to fall in love with working with these little kids that were kind of new to the sport. And I really enjoyed going in there. And I could see them kind of getting a little bit better. And um, I kind of said, you know what? I actually enjoy this more than I thought. And at the time, I started, I had been doing CrossFit and things like that. So when I moved back to the States, uh, I started kind of formulating this idea that, hey, maybe this is a, a career path for you uh, with this new emerging world of people that are interested in the sport. Uh, you know, I'd coached Stanford for a little bit, but I was like, I don't think I want to coach at the highest level. This is a whole new group of people that uh, might need my help and could use my help. So it kind of fell into my lap after an unfortunate injury. That is so cool. And then uh, after that, um, when was the inception of, of Power Monkeys and how, how did it, uh, that align with uh, you getting into the CrossFit world and being where you are today? Sure. So uh, Power Monkey was an existing company. It had been founded in 2011 by um, a couple down in Florida. They were making rigs and some other equipment down in uh, the southeast area. And uh, my partner and I, Shane, who, who we met in 2010, uh, after I just moved back from Italy, uh, performing, he was a, a stuntman and a coordinator for performances, Nick's halftime show, you know, that kind of stuff. And then um, he asked me to be in the Victoria's Secret show in 2010. That's kind of where we met. I remember so, that, by the way. Yeah. I, yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I would... One of the other things that I got a lot of airtime on that uh, right before I met my wife, this was my uh, uh, a very cool thing that me and my partner got to do uh, for the first time. Go check it out on YouTube, 2010 Victoria's Secret Show. Gymnast tumbling down the, the runway, almost kicked the model off the stage, which is kind of funny. Uh, and, I, and if I if I don't remember, <laughs> if I remember correctly, they had like mushrooms and stuff and you were doing, uh -huh. yeah, some circles, flares and stuff. Yeah, right? all this stupid little back yeah, tucks. It, it, it was cool. I yeah, thought it was yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I've never seen gymnasts in this in this uh, oh, yeah. way. This is cool. Yeah, we got some cool airtime uh, 
Very, very cool event. Um, we still have that mushroom. It's at Power Monkey Camp, actually. It's signed by all the other gymnasts there. Sasha was one of them, too. Sasha was one of the gymnasts that did it with us. Uh, but yeah, so that was 2010, and uh, we had the idea for our ring thing, which is our ring training device, kind of in the gymnastics world, it's known as a dream machine. It's a 50-50 ring training device that works through a pulley system. We put one together and started to uh, shop it around to a bunch of different equipment manufacturers, and PowerMucky liked the idea. They started making them for, him, for us, and I started being a traveling salesman. I would travel around the country with a few of these on my back and go to gyms and say, hey, interested in doing it, I would do some demos, and People would buy some, and I would be like, oh, my God, we're going to make it just on this piece of equipment. And then over time, uh, they brought us on as partners, and then we eventually uh, bought them out a few years later and turned the company into what it is today, more around education. Uh, obviously, our camps, our events, our retreats, uh, but mostly about, around education, programming, our PowerMonkey training app, and just trying to teach people a lot uh, what it means to be technical. And our staff has expanded beyond gymnastics to a lot of other former elite athletes, who transitioned to coaching in their respective fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the original partnership in terms of the technical coaching that you were doing in these camps was with Chad Vaughn, right? Yeah, yeah, me and Chad, and me and Chad are our logo. I don't know if it's... Yep. Yeah, there, that's our logo. That's In we... fact, I have it right here on my desk, too, yeah. Oh, yeah? That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because because uh, Sadie just sent me, a, or, or I don't know if it was Sadie or Jordan, but uh, you guys sent me a, a little a nice little handwritten card. Oh, yeah, card I sent that after. to you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, it. of course. Uh, but that's... Um, me and Chad, and at first Power Monkey Camp, we did that, and so we took a video of Chad being in an overhead squat position, and I did a press to handstand on the bar behind him. I held it just long enough for them to be able to get snap a picture, and for us to be able to create our logo. And then I fell over and almost destroyed myself. <laughs> Dude, do you want do you want to hear something funny that I'm just remembering right now? Um, this was probably. Oh my goodness. Maybe 2009, 2000, uh, let's say it was 2011 or 12. Uh, Instagram had just kind of started popping off and, uh, you know, everybody was kind of hype on social media. And uh, at the time I was working with Diane Fu, who had just started doing weightlifting mm -hmm. within the CrossFit space. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a handstand. I'm going to take a picture. You're going to hold an overhead squat <laughs> and uh, we're going to take a picture. And then we're going to Photoshop it together <laughs> and we're going to put it out. And, and people, thought it, people thought it was real. Uh, and and then when I saw yours, I was like, oh, shit, Dave and Chad are doing it for real. Dude, I you, love it. I love that it. That was insane. I have to find that picture. I'm going to share it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's on our social media account. The video is there, too, not just the picture. And so, yeah, you had the idea before us, but uh, we, we had tested it out. But you did it. Yeah, <laughs> we did it with Mike Service. Mike Mike Service, one of our other weightlifting coaches, always pissed off because we tried to do it with Mike first uh, at one of the courses we were teaching in Hawaii, but we couldn't do it. And then uh, we did it at camp, and it was with Chad and, and me. And so he's always like, I tried to do it first, and we couldn't do it. But, of course, Chad was the one that was able to get it done. But Chad's been a big part of our our team since the beginning. Uh, we did a, a, a combo course or just weightlifting and gymnastics technical seminars at CrossFit Milford, uh, Jay Lydon's gym, years and years ago. It was the first time that we actually, we had come across uh, each other's path at the Olympic Training Center over the years when we were both athletes. But that was the first time that we actually saw our, uh, you know, uh, work together in the CrossFit space. And uh, we thought it was a really good idea to be able to expand in the same way that you and Diane and some others thought it might be good to, to bring some specialists from different worlds together. Mm, that is so cool. And and now it's evolved, of course. And, and uh, uh, what's the deal with the app? Yeah, so the app is something we're pretty proud of. It's um, 
it's taken a long time to be able to get to the iteration that it is now as most developers or people who have tried to start an app from scratch know it's uh, a tenuous and challenging and financially sucking process to be able to do something from scratch but we're really proud of it uh, we're still working on some new iterations we just unveiled the new design um, right around Thanksgiving so beginning of December so it's fairly new a couple months old but um, it's primarily around gymnastics uh, programs right now we kind of have four different categories of programs we have the skill development which is one that most people would come to us for learn a handstand learn a pull-up learn um, muscle up, whatever it might be. We have a lot of those skill development plans. Uh, they're meant for anyone and everyone. So for the person that's never touched a set of rings before, all the way up to someone that's, you know, can get it during an open workout, but doesn't understand why the rest of the year they don't have it. And so, <laughs> uh, you get put in, you do an assessment, you get put into a level. And some of the cool things that we've allowed for within our, uh, the back end of the app is that even if someone gets put into the same level in one of these skill plans, it doesn't mean they're going to get the same plan. So um, the, the assessments are based around strength and mobility. So say um, your mobility is lacking in a particular area, you will get more uh, programs around uh, how to fix that mobility issue. Or if you're someone that's hypermobile, you'll get more stability exercises according to those limitations or you know those issues. So it's allowed for a semi-individualized plan to be uh, given out to people beyond just the level, beyond just the assessment, beyond just say we're all same level one, uh, it allows for a little bit more of an individualized experience, which is kind of unique. Uh, beyond the skill development, we started to put in volume building plans for the athletes out there. So if you're trying to get one handstand push up into five, into 10, into 20, into 30, whatever unbroken, we now have some volume plans that we're putting out there for the competitive athlete. Uh, we have these 365 plans, which fall in line with our initial conversation around the importance of doing core and mobility on a daily basis for creation of shapes. The first 365 plan that we have is core 365, and they're just 10 to 10 to 15 minute max, maybe sometimes five minute core workouts every single day that vary it up in terms of what they tackle. All parts of that midline, and it's just more about adding an accessory piece around this idea of the importance of core work. And then aside from those 365, we have what we call monkey method. And our monkey method are um, the hierarchy plans built around GPP for gymnastics around all of those phases that we mentioned. So we have a phase one, beginner, intermediate, advanced, a phase two, beginner, intermediate, advanced, phase three, beginner, intermediate, advanced. And so uh, these are ring work, core work, bar work, handstand, mobility, all encompassing into uh, three to six day a week plans where someone can become more well-rounded in their gymnastics rather than specifically working on a skill, it allows them to become a little bit more well-rounded. The plans are a little bit longer, hour plus per session, but it gives a more well-rounded approach in terms of uh, how they're applying their gymnastics rather than a specific skill. So that idea is uh, the starting point, but we're going to start to slowly incorporate more of the Power Monkey coaches, uh, weightlifting programs, running programs, kettlebell programs. The next iteration is going to expand into what we do in person at our camps in Tennessee, but we're starting out with the gymnastics side since that's what most people know us for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds amazing and uh, uh, very scary because it's a lot, a lot of work. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot goes into that, and and as you said, costly. Now, now this when question I... may come out of left field, but I'm curious just to kind of uh, get a sense of uh, where you're at and where your audience is. What is it that you're currently sharing that people are just like? 
eating up. It's like hotcakes versus uh, what is the stuff that people are like crickets on? Yeah, social media is the most annoying thing in the world in terms of <laughs> what the algorithm is finding to be useful or not useful. Um, I'd say we're constantly trying to figure out what our viewers and, and listeners and people who come to us for content are striving to know more about. I'd say that, one, they are constantly interested in the minutia around technique still. Uh, they want to know a lot about uh, breaking down of movements. They like when we offer some technical expertise around things that maybe maybe they've heard, but maybe they like it in a different voice or things like that. So we're still working on the technical expertise side. The other thing that has always resonated well with my following, which I don't do enough of, um, is taking higher level gymnastics pieces and talking about them mm. and saying, here's the routine that won rings at world championships last year. Let's take a look and analyze what's going on and apply it to what you're doing. Let's look at his false grip and talk about false grip. Let's talk about uh, the way that he's hanging and build out uh, what we're seeing at a higher level. And people love not just being in awe of what those higher level athletes are doing, but also being able to analyze and break it down into their own specific, um, you know, applications in their own gyms. So for it's us, it's kind of that, like, a, sorry for interrupting, it's kind of like, yeah. uh, is that like an entertaining case study? Yeah, basically. That's just, yeah. exactly right. That's how I treat it. That's mm -hmm. how I treat it. Um, and I think um, doing that more and more has, uh, I've always found that to be fun for me because it gives me a chance to kind of expose people to things that they don't see in the regular gym, but also, um, you know, seems to be something that people um, enjoy viewing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I, I really like that. And then uh, you, you, I, I interrupted you, so you were, you're on a flow. Uh, hotcakes, and then what are things that are crickets that you're like, this is important. Why are you not listening to this? <laughs> oh, man, I don't even know. Sometimes we put out workouts, you know, like workouts that we think would be good. Uh, anything me coaching to the camera, pff, terrible. Nobody wants to hear really? that. Really? <laughs> are, you, are you serious? Yeah, to be honest with you, like, it's really hard for me to be able to know um, because, like, sometimes things will hit really well and we'll try to replicate it and it doesn't work. And it's like, it's it's hard to know consistently like consistently the t the small uh minutia I, I wouldn't say that no that's not true when we put things on youtube where i can do more long long form discussions around a skill those do really well like uh, people really enjoy longer form discussions around um more than what they might just get in a, you know a reel or something like that around the skill and i and i can go a little bit deeper into the some of the technical and some of the stories behind the skills which i really enjoy uh, but in a longer form discussion, those work pretty well. But it's hard to get that across when you're in a, a short form reel where people just want to be amazed or, you know, they, they scroll through so quickly that if someone's talking, it's like boring. Let's move on to the next thing where, you know, I need the shock and all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, do you spend a lot of time thinking about this or you're kind of like, whatever, I'm just going to keep developing uh, the quality program that I have and the offerings? Or is it something that you care about? Um, I despise it. <laughs> I, I really, I, I really, I really, really like, I hate social media. <laughs> like, yeah. I hate that it's something that's a necessity. You know what I mean? Like, if I could just do it for fun, which was initially how it was, and I could put up cool picture or cool, cool move. But the fact that it's a necessity for a marketing purpose now um, really just eats at me. And like, obviously, we have a couple people on the team that assist with it. And I have some people that help, you know, m make the content look pretty and whatever else. But if it would go away tomorrow, I would be just happy, like much, mm -hmm. much happier and 
I, I really just don't find it to be something that's enjoyable on my end. Um, I, I, I really don't. And I know that, like I said, it's more of a, a necessary evil rather than it's something that I like look forward to doing. I'd rather teach someone in person. I love, I like, I just got back from another course this weekend, uh, teaching 20, 25 people in person, all different. We had a 12 year old all the way up to, you know, some people in their fifties, early sixties. And I Amazing. absolutely loved every second of it. You know, we did eight, nine hours of uh, instruction and it felt like it went by in like five seconds for me. And so for me, that's where I feel like I make the most impact. That's why our in-person camps, I feel like are mm-hmm. so just powerful. Uh, but the social media stuff for me, I could do without. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do do you? Uh, <laughs> this may be a trick question. Do you enjoy do you, do you enjoy recording the podcast? I do. I do. Um, I actually, you know, because I said like I think it's a you can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, as a as someone that does podcasts, uh, it takes a while to find your voice and uh, to understand how because. I don't really think of myself as a good interviewer. It's not something I went to school for, something that uh, I learned how to do. So the first few podcasts, you're learning exactly who you are on that on the air and you know what what the right questions are to ask and not just be iterative of the same thing that the person has asked in the other twenty podcasts they've been on and try to find the unique direction to take something. And so um, I, I enjoy the challenge of that. Um, I think that to be a good podcast, podcaster and someone who does it well you need to be thoughtful in preparation um you need to be someone that takes the time and uh i would love a few more hours out of uh the week to be able to devote to it i I definitely do it but not nearly as much as i would like to just because i have so many other things going on but i feel like we're finding our voice a little bit more you know we're two and a half years in now we're coming up on 160 70 podcasts that we've done and so I think we're becoming a little bit better and um, finding exactly who we are in terms of this world where it's being flooded with, you know, similar types of things. But you have to be able to kind of stand out. I think we're slowly starting to do that. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, after I was on your podcast, I got a lot of messages uh, with people saying, oh, I love that podcast. I'm definitely mm-hmm. listening in. So, yeah, you definitely have a reputation. I think that's cool. And it just that's made me think hear. of, you know, uh, the technical term UGC, which is like user generated uh, content. And I think podcasting, especially because you have such such great um, guests, allow you uh, to create content for Power Monkeys that attracts people to to it. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's exciting, and and maybe you'll you'll reach escape velocity one day, and you will will be able to just hide in in a in a coaching <laughs> cave, and uh, and we'll be good. <laughs> you never know. And I haven't announced this yet. This will be the first. I don't know when this is going out, but uh, me and my wife and my kids are moving to Italy for a little bit. And no so, way! Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, this weekend. <laughs> so this we're in, weekend. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we're uh, in full pack mode right now. We're going to work on a, a big project in the fitness world out there, and so um, yeah, it's taking me and my wife's. Our relationship started in Venice. Uh, we spent a year in Venice for another um, project for the Venice Biennale, and uh, we spent a lot of time out there. But yeah, we're gonna not for a long time, just three months, but. It's going to be a, a nice little chance for us to experience a, a new thing with the whole family. So um, most podcasts moving forward will be for another country for a while. Wow, that's that's very cool. Congratulations on making that Thanks. that happen. Thank you. Uh, okay, let, let's let's bring this to a gentle close. Um, if if we had to wrap uh, your philosophy up into a little package that you could gift somebody, 
uh, CrossFit space, gymnastics space, fitness, health space. What is the philosophy that you embody and you would hope that uh, people could include in their way of thinking or being? Uh, good question. I think one, just find a love for something like you have to, you have to enjoy what you're doing if you're going to expect to do it for duration, for longevity. And so whether that's gymnastics or uh, whatever else it is, uh, it shouldn't feel like a chore. So search, you know, play around with different things. I would love people to find a love for gymnastics and for gymnastics and CrossFit, but it doesn't have to be that. But I just want people to be able to find something that they enjoy waking up and doing every day. You know, we, we talk about, I think both of us fall into this bucket of having found a career around something that we, you know, I look forward to Mondays kind of a thing, right? That cliche of being excited to, to, to get to do the work that we do. And um, start with the fitness aspect of that. Maybe it's not your job, but at least you get to choose uh, the thing that gives you enjoyment from the fitness side. And so like if kicking up the handstand feels like a chore, find something else, you know, maybe you'll come back to it later on the road, but I really think that you should try and find something that that uh, gives you some enjoyment around the the physical side and you look forward to on a weekly basis rather than it being something that you feel like you have to do. Um, and the other thing that we preach endlessly is uh, take the time to take a few steps back and um, be willing to learn over uh, or learn again or understand that things are a process and understand timelines around some of the things that we're talking about and just uh, appreciate that development of anything worthwhile takes real time. And uh, so I know that time is our most precious commodity and um, I never want to waste people's time. And I think sometimes it is a waste of time when we expect things to happen immediately. It's a complete waste of time. And we need to appreciate that um, anything that we want to develop for longevity and for health and for better well-being and better movement and efficiency will come with time. And so just uh, understand the patience that, that comes along with that process. And I think people will be better off in the long run. Mm. Beautifully said. Dave, how can uh, we support you? How can people uh, find you? Where shall we go? Um, well, uh, Instagram is just at Dave Durante, at Power Monkey Fitness. Those are the two best accounts to follow what we're up to. Uh, we have our Power Monkey podcast, which uh, comes out weekly. Uh, our Power Monkey training app is both in iOS and Android store. Check those out. Uh, and you can use the code LAUNCH for a free month if you're willing to check it out. Uh, yeah. And then our Power Monkey Camp. Uh, this is our 10-year anniversary. We're really excited about it. Go to PowerMonkeyCamp.com for check out uh, our fall and spring dates. Spring, uh, we just have a couple of spots left. It's going to be April 30th to May 6th. And then our uh, 20th camp, which is going to be uh, September 24th to September 30th. It's about half four right now, so there's some spots left over, but they're going to be some pretty special ones for our 10 years. So those are all the places where you can find us right now. And just email me, Dave at Power you Fitness. Go. If you got a question, uh, I want to be able to help out as many pe people as I can. If, uh, if, they, if I have something that people find valuable, uh, I want to be a resource for them. So hopefully they reach out. I love that. Dave, I, I've admired you as an athlete. In fact, when I got to see you compete in San Jose, I think it was 2008, actually. That was the Olympic trials. Oh, wait. Uh, or, or was it, yeah, oh, was it the seven national championships? championships. No, yeah. seven championships in San Jose. That's the one that I won. Yeah. 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 And uh, when I saw you live, uh, I was like, this dude is a beast. So I've, I have admired you as an athlete for a long time. Uh, I've admired you as a coach and seen your evolution over the last decade has been amazing. And I, I definitely admire you as a person. 
And I just appreciate you sharing so openly uh, with me today. And uh, yeah, I hope the listeners really got what they came for. And and I, I look forward to more in the future. So thank you so thank much. You, Carl. I appreciate it, man. It's always good to chat and I uh, appreciate the questions and diving a little bit back into that history and hopefully we can do it in person sometime soon. Yeah, let's make it happen. All right, dude. Thank you. Take care. This is the Freestyle Way.